This is a Federal News Network podcast. A big holiday is coming up in July. It celebrates free people who don't stay silent in the face of wrongdoing. No, not Independence Day, July 4th. It's National Whistleblowers Day on July 30th. Now the National Whistleblower Center has urged federal agency heads to offer educational programming about July 30th. We get more now from the chairman of the National Whistleblower Center and a partner at the law firm Corn, Cone, and Colapinto, Stephen Cohn. Mr. Cohn, good to have you back. Oh, great to be here. And with this National Whistleblower Day, tell us more about that. Sure. So this day marks when the U.S. Continental Congress, on July 30th, 1778, passed America's first whistleblower law. It's a great law called upon every single citizen or inhabitant in the United States to disclose violations of law to appropriate authorities. And it was, you know, before the U.S. Constitution, before the First Amendment, and it reflects a fundamental principle of American democracy, unanimously understood by the Founding Fathers during the revolution. So when this was rediscovered, I did historical research and we found this incident, found the resolution. Since 2013, every year, the U.S. Senate has passed a resolution urging all executive departments to acknowledge Whistleblower Day, call attention to the contributions of whistleblowers, and really try to change the culture where whistleblowers are often demonized. Yes, I guess since that resolution so many years ago, if you would consider whistleblowers as nails sticking up above the surface of the board, basically we spend our time trying to hammer them back down in. (laughs) Exactly. And what's incredible about that is when you go back to the history in 1778, the Continental Congress fully supported whistleblowers who had disclosed misconduct against the commander of the U.S. Navy. So this was an embarrassing situation, yet they didn't hide from it. They released the documents. And what's remarkable is that two of the whistleblowers were arrested on charges filed by the commander, and the Continental Congress voted to pay the attorney's fees of those whistleblowers so they could win their case in Providence, Rhode Island. So they passed a resolution, they allocated money, and they did this during the American Revolution. So basically the rebellion had rebels within the rebellion. Exactly, and they were reporting frauds, they were reporting misconduct, and what's incredible, when these allegations came to the Continental Congress, instead of just blocking them out or declaring state secrets or saying we're in a national emergency, they held a hearing, They took the evidence of the whistleblower. They then presented that evidence, and they called upon the commander to rebut it. He didn't. They then removed the commander from his position. And then when the whistleblowers were retaliated against, they came to the defense of those whistleblowers. And then they passed this resolution calling upon every inhabitant of the United States to report frauds and violations of law to appropriate authorities. And this is the foundation of freedom of speech in the United States. 
Yes, if you think about it, in some ways, it goes back to the idea of people not being undifferentiated subjects to a king or to some sort of potentate, but almost to the Magna Carta, in a sense that individuals do have rights to their personal sovereignty and their property. Absolutely. And when you read the letters and the correspondence and the testimony, what you see is that these whistleblowers were relying upon what was known as the common law constitution which is just what you're talking about, the natural rights of all people to participate in civil society, which means you have to be able to expose wrongdoing. You can't have freedom or the rule of law if the people can't report violations. And that was really understood by these whistleblowers and the members of the Continental Congress that advocated on their behalf. We're speaking with Stephen Cohn. He's chairman of the National Whistleblower Center and a partner at the law firm Corn, Cohn, and Colapinto. And since you know, more recent times, there have been whistleblower laws passed in our times. And just a couple of years ago, a Whistleblower Protection Enhancement Act. What's your sense of how things are now a couple of years after that enhancement and when there's so much whistleblower activity going on, either as a result of it or just because that's the way things tend to happen in the federal government? In the federal government, for federal employees, things are still very bad. The Merit Systems Protection Board has been without a quorum for four years, and there's a backlog of thousands of cases. So whistleblowers have been really out in the cold, federal whistleblowers. A private sector have done better. And what's incredible is the agencies that have implemented correctly these new whistleblower laws now all support them, and they do publicly praise the whistleblower. And that is the key to the change in culture, the change in perception. We really won't accept whistleblowers or really have a, a system in which people feel comfortable raising concerns until the workplace culture shifts. And from our perspective, the key to that is for the leadership not only to say whistleblowing is okay, but to point to examples, to point to what the Continental Congress did, and to educate their workforce and the American public that this is the American way. This is part of our credo as free people. And getting back to your call, your organization's call, for educational information to be presented in advance of the July 30th Celebration Day, what do you see as content and how it might be delivered? Well, it's fascinating because, for example, the uh, DNI celebrated Whistleblower Day the same year that the Ukraine whistleblower came out. And they had information, they had uh, meetings information was put prominently on their web page. Other agencies have done the same, but they're still the minority, like the Office of Special Counsel. But you can see when an agency from the top explains not just that whistleblowing is lawful, but when they explain the contributions and the importance, and they tie that to the founding of the American Republic itself, I believe that starts to create a change in attitude, not just within managers, but also within the employees. Stephen Cohn is chairman of the National Whistleblower Center and partner at the law firm Corn, Cohn & Colapinto. Thanks so much for joining me. 
Thank you. And by the way, have you gotten any, yes, we're going to do this, from any of the agencies that you have sent this request to? We'll keep you updated on that, but we did get confirmations that Michael Horowitz, Inspector General of DOJ, and Henry Kerner, the head of the Office of Special Counsel, they will be speaking at our Whistleblower Day celebration. And we have other invitations out, so that's been progress. All right. Well, we will post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a senior advisor and deputy chief of staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment, chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black. Literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. 
that was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of of them, of of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, Who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who has, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that that attribute, I think, is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic! And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give? to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a Secretary of Commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort 
down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.